The White House is filling two key cybersecurity roles at the National Security Council and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. These two are among the most prominent technology leadership positions that needed to be filled by the Biden administration. In his weekly feature, The Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about these nominations in some detail. Jason joins me now. And Jason, give us the uh, names. First of all, I know who they are, but I'll let you tell the audience. Jen Easterly is going to lead the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency and Chris Inglis, who's going to be the new White House National Cybersecurity Director. Now, the Chris Inglis position is actually new. That was created by the defense authorization bill in 2021 and that had been floating around who's going to be what kind of position does it need to be who's going to be in charge so i think that's it's an interesting choice because chris as you know tom you've had him on your show he comes from the nsa world which is much different than going into a national security council white house role jenna easterly on the other hand was part of the biden transition team she also uh, worked at the national security agency as well so there's a lot of these nsa folks coming back and as someone pointed out i think on twitter Yesterday, there's NSA now at the you know, potentially White House cybersecurity role, NSA at CISA, NSA and Newberger also with the National Security Council. So there's this kind of spreading out of these intelligence folks into other roles. And it'll be interesting to see how things will be different, how what, what kind of challenges they'll face. Because, as you know, Tom, civilian, not the same as DOD or, or intelligence community. Well, it might be a little easier for Chris Inglis because he retired about 10, 12 years ago in the first place. So he's been out of the direct federal picture for some time now. He has been out. He's been over at Palladium as a managing director. But remember, he he, and he was a civilian leader at NSA. He's not a military leader from NSA. So I think that also helps. He also was the chief operating officer over at NSA. So that, again, he gives him a perspective of, of what many civilian agencies will have as well. But the role is not clearly defined for the White House. And, you know, you also have a federal chief information security officer and the Biden folks named Chris Russia there. So how is that going to fit? And then how's it going to fit in with the CISA where Jen Easterly takes over for Chris Krebs? And Chris Krebs, Tom, as you know, was a very popular person that some said he was probably one of the few people from the Trump administration that potentially could have stayed on with the Biden folks. And he's been very outspoken about just the work that CISA has done, not just about election security, which is I think we hear a lot from him, but just the partnership with industry and the ability to really protect federal and critical infrastructure networks. Plus, he had a really good collection of bro socks. But in the meantime, tell us why this is so important that these positions be filled now, how critical they are, Jason. Tom, as we reported over the last you know couple months, between the SolarWinds attack, between the now Microsoft Exchange server incidents, the way cyber attacks are happening, the impact of those cyber attacks, you really need somebody, and if you will, as Congress has said, a belly button to push, because right now there isn't one. Now, unfortunately, I would say with Chris English coming potentially at the White House and Jen Easterly over at CISA, you still don't have a single belly button to push, but at least you're getting many belly buttons who are very smart, understanding of the issues, and able to really take a holistic approach to government to the response to these things. Now, we've heard, for instance, the Microsoft Exchange server incident hasn't really impacted government to a great degree. There's only about nine agencies that are really trying to still remove these exchange servers out of there. We'll know more later. SolarWinds, on the other hand, same thing. It has not been a huge impact so far. There's, again, only a handful of agencies that, that really are feeling the brunt of it. 
But Tom, the rate of attacks, the velocity, the ferocity of attacks aren't going to stop. So having these folks in place, and the sooner the Congress can get them through the confirmation process, because at least Jen Easterly has to go through the confirmation process. I imagine that the White House person does too. The sooner they can get these folks in place, the better the government will be to protect their own networks, but also work with the private sector. And I think that's another area where there's a lot of improvement that's needed because there's a trust factor. And, and so having these folks who have some experience in the private sector, have experience in government is a really smart thing to do. I'll be interested to see what their confirmation hearings look like and what kind of questions they get, whether it is that one single belly button to push or if it's just more of the platitudes of why is cyber important and what we need to do to improve it type of thing. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller, and you mentioned contractors, and there's initiatives there on contractor performance assessments shifting gears a little bit here, and there's an update you've got on trying to make those contractor performance assessments somewhat more valuable to the agencies that have to assess contractors. What's going on there? This is commonly known as CPARS, Contractor Performance Assessment Retrieval System. What tends to happen, Tom, is agencies give contractors a satisfactory rating. Everyone's satisfactory. Everyone's a C plus, right? Why? Because it's just too much trouble. It's too burdensome to really make them a B or a D or an A or whatever the grade you want to give them. Two forces are happening at once. First of all, the General Services Administration, their senior procurement executive, Jeff Kosas, released what they call an acquisition alert, an acquisition letter, where he's encouraging contracting officers to let vendors do self-assessments. Very similar, Tom, to what happens in the human resources world where your boss comes to you and says, Tom, I want you to fill this piece of paper out and tell me how you did this year. And then I can, you know, then the boss says to you, okay, I read your paper. Here's my review. Let's combine them. Let's have a path forward for, for how you did and where you want to go next. So I think that's a really important document that GSA released because sometimes contracting officers need a piece of paper that says you're allowed to do this versus oh, it's not in the FAR, so you can do it type of thing. The other piece is the Homeland Security Department. This is something we've talked about in the past. They have pilots going on using artificial intelligence, AI, and they have five awardees who have received $125,000 each to demonstrate their technologies, and those demonstrations are happening this year. So it's key for them to say, okay, we can apply AI tools, AI software, to contractor performance assessments, and can we get better data out? Can we relieve the burden, and can we make it more valuable? And I guess this all adds up to a pretty critical time, especially as the Biden administration's priorities, as expressed through its budget request, are starting to be coming through here. A lot of that is going to be acquisition dollars, the increases that they're looking at. Absolutely. It's a huge increase in dollars. I think people expect to come, should Congress pass any or all parts of the budget proposal from from the president so far. And it's critical for two reasons. Number one, it's really going to show whether contract officers care about contractor pass performance, right? You have an acquisition letter, do you use it? If we see an uptake of just a few people take it, you know, using it, then you would go, okay, do really people care enough about it? And the same thing with AI, if it can get to phase three, which is, you know, full production, is that going to show that one, the tools are valuable, two, they work, and three, that people want to use them. And there's a lot of questions happening. And you know, when I talk to Polly Hall, who's who leads the Procurement Innovation Lab at DHS, she says, you know, we have some sticky wickets we have to get through still, including security authority to operate, as well as some policy changes that potentially would be needed in the FAR. And she was saying, if we can get over those humps, we think we can make a big difference. But the question is, can you get over the humps? And can you get broad support from the community? DHS already has nine other agencies along with them who are interested in piloting these tools and using these tools. Agencies gave these five vendors procurement records, 50,000 procurement records to test out the AI against. So there's 
a lot of interest. The question is, will it can go from you know pilot phase to production phase? And I think that's why this year is so critical. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Check out his reporter's notebook. It's now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So, what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is Ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing, like never before, on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit 
different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group Affinity Insurance world for um, three decades. I've led, this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.